How would you react if you discovered your family had a secret fortune? Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We've all heard immigrant stories involving hard work and sacrifice, but Mort's actor's tale is different. Turns out his family didn't need to slave away for decades at their bakery on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Mort's uncles had a secret fortune, secret even to him for more than 30 years. He eventually inherited their $6 million. Mort tells his story in a new memoir called Doe, and he's our guest on this morning cityscape. Mort, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, George. Now, the book says Mort, but I know your name is Morton. You don't like being called Morton, and you write about that in the book. When I was young, I had a friend named Janice whose family was French, and she told me it meant dead one. And ever since then, I would have much preferred either to shorten it to Mort, or I would have really wished how they would have called me my Hebrew name, Mordechai. I think that would have made much more sense. And also, my grandfather, who I was named after, his Hebrew name was Mordechai, but somehow his was translated into Max. Max would have been better to anything other than the dead one. Your grandparents were Russian immigrants. That's correct. They came to this country in 1913 from Russia. Your parents, though, and your uncles all born here in the U.S.? My Mother and father were born here in the U.S., but both of my uncles were a little bit older. They were both born in Russia. The older uncle was about eight or nine when he came here. The younger uncle, Uncle Harry, he was uh, two or three. Uncle Joe and Uncle Harry. The inside man and the outside man. Yeah, Um, why don't you explain that, the inside man and the outside man? um, My family, when they first came um, in uh, 1913, originally, like many immigrants, had a push cart on the Lower East Side. Then they graduated to having a grocery store in the shadow of Williamsburg Bridge. Eventually, they had a what was called a commission bakery. Nothing is ever baked in a commission bakery. They merely buy their bread um, wholesale from uh, major manufacturers and then sell it. After my um, grandfather died in the mid-1930s, my uncles took over the business. And Uncle Harry was, as my mother would describe him, the outside man. He was always either picking up stuff, which is what they referred to as the bread and cake um, before it hit the store, and selling the merchandise, which was what they called it when they sold it. And he was making deliveries as well to restaurants where the mock-up on the bread and cake was higher. So he was constantly out of the store. Uncle Joe was the inside man, as uh, my mother referred to him as, and he was there selling the bread and cake. And as my mother said, no one moved the merchandise like my Uncle Joe. Um, He was quite a salesman. And when Uncle Joe did go out, he mainly went to the synagogue. That's right. He would go to the Sixth Street Synagogue that's still there. And um, what he would do is is some of the um, larger bakeries would deliver in the morning and he would get a ride at that point. He was old and walking for him was tough. And he would ask one of the delivery men to bring him from 9th Street to 6th Street so he could go to synagogue. And I probably convinced him to stay a while and bring him back. That's what he enjoyed. He Because he was born um, in the old country, as they say, he had been uh, brought up in more of the shtetl life. And he was the more religious member of the family. And he would have been very happy Um, just studying Torah all day. That's what he really would have loved. Um, Why he did what he did and and not done that so much is one of the great mysteries that I've still to unravel. Take us to your uncle's bakery where nothing was ever baked. 
on 9th Street on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Okay. The bakery, as I remember it as a little boy in the 1960s, was this run-down hole in the wall. It was a one-story shack. Uh, above it were um, clotheslines where some um, wash was always hanging. So the place had the look of this Chinese junk with funky white sails. And then in the windows, the big picture windows, were always crammed and jammed with bread and cake boxes and cookie bags in absolutely no order at all, just totally um, a mess. And then once you stepped inside, it was actually even worse than it looked from outside because at that time, um, the health code laws allowed the customers to actually touch the bread and cake. So there were bagels and bialis all on the customer side of the store, not covered by glass, not behind the counter, and people could just squeeze or sneeze on or steal the bread or merchandise as they saw fit. It was also a place that had been put together in the 1930s and had been painted in the 60s with this bright orange day glow color. So it was quite a contrast to this old wood that looked very European with this bright color to it. And there behind the counter were my uncles and my mother too because she also worked in the store. Um... And it was constantly crowded. And my image of going there on Saturday, which there's a whole debate within my family whether or not they should keep the bakery open on the Jewish Sabbath, but they did because it was the busiest day of the week. My family would be behind the counter, and it would be so crowded that my father took the job of standing outside the store and not letting a customer in until another one had exited. The store needed a velvet rope. The store needed a velvet rope. Yes, it would have been quite the in place, and it's still there. Um, it's still run very in a very similar way. Um, nothing is baked. It's been cleaned up a lot. Everything's behind glass, and a very nice young Ukrainian couple own it now and run it, and um, Oleg and his wife, Titania, and they have been very nice to me. I, I have a nice rapport with them now, and I actually even gave them a copy of the book. And Oleg, whose English is not the best, said it's it's really a warm book. What's also very funny is the fact that your uncles kept a cat in the store. Right, right. Despite the uh, health code uh, prohibition of that, there was always a cat in the store. And uh, they always called the cat either Susie or Susie Q. They would only change the name to denote that the prior cat had run away and not come back. And it was always a female cat. And wherever the cat had kittens, um, they would just give away all these cats. That was probably the only thing in the store that they actually, um, they depending on the customer, they would sometimes give bread away for free. But the cats, they were, if you wanted a kitten and they were there, that you could get for free. Your family's story is much like the story of many immigrant families. These were really hard workers. As you mentioned, right. your uncles very, very rarely closed. Right. I, I use the line in the book that um, if they were awake, they were working. The bakery basically opened at like 6 or 7 in the morning when Uncle Joe would be there to open up the store and take in deliveries, and they wouldn't leave until midnight or whenever the bread and cake ran out. My mother would go to work there on Saturdays or when it, one of them needed a break. But it was um, incredible um, immigrant work ethic and, I guess, propelled further by um, a certain Depression-era mentality. Times it must have been tough then. They had a business and people would buy bread, so they were able to make it through. Um, but even I noticed when cleaning up my uncle's um, apartment after they both had passed away, 
the older uncle actually had a hack license. So he, in addition to working in the bakery, drove a cab during the 1930s. Your mother worked at the bakery unpaid. Right. Um, that's one of the great um, injustices to her. And I'd say if there's any person who really gave their all for very little in the story, it's it's my mother. When she was young, she went to Hunter College and she studied um, childhood education. She graduated and she was teaching in Brooklyn and then her father died. And now there was a need for someone else to work in the bakery and she came to help out my grandmother, her mother. And then what she would do was she changed to being a substitute teacher so that she could still continue what she did, but she couldn't do it full time. And um, eventually, actually, when she was older, she even went back um, in her 40s to get a master's degree. And um, she was later on dedicated to the older brother, Uncle Joe, who she felt sorry for because he was sick and he really couldn't work that much anymore. And she would come in to give him a break. Um, And because it had been the family business, and I guess when she lived at home when when my grandmother was around, she wasn't paid then, and then it just kind of morphed that she would really just came in, and they gave her whatever bread or cake was left over, and these chocolate lace cookies that she brought home just for me that were my favorites, and I used to eat them by the bag full. We should point out that your dad also worked for your uncles without getting pay. Right. He he was, um, my father um, went to law school. He also went to law school um, at um, St. John's Law School when it was a joint undergraduate-graduate program in the 1930s. After he graduated, apparently it was um, tough to get a job at that time as an attorney, and he worked, took a job as a senior claims as a claims examiner in an unemployment insurance office. But every Monday night, he would go downtown to one of the major um, wholesale bakeries. I forget which one it was, Pector's or Danilow's um, or RK, pick up stuff and bring it to. Um, the bakery, and I still remember him coming home on Monday nights at around halftime of Monday night football, and it's in the winter, his coat still being cold and and coming up to him and greeting him, and uh, that was his Monday night job. Mort, you mentioned that your mom felt bad for your uncles in a way, and you talk about Jewish guilt and how much Jewish guilt is a part of your family's life. Talk to us about that. Um, Jewish guilt was never described to me, but it was clearly the motivator that that got my mother um, to come to the bakery. Uncle Harry, who was a a marvelous businessman, um, would say to my mother to motivate her to come for no pay that Uncle Joe needs a break. Um, He said he wants to go out and make deliveries or pick up stuff, and if he doesn't, the the, uh, merchandise will walk out the door. In essence, people would shoplift if Uncle Joe was just there by himself. And that was what got her to go. I think that was a huge part of it. And she really gave up what she wanted to do to help her family. And then in the end, she made quite a bit of sacrifice of herself to pass things on to me. And um, it's a a bittersweet story. And when I think about the guilt and and my mother's... um, interest in all this. It, it, that's the um, kind of bitter part of it. We're going to talk about your family's secret in okay. just a little bit, but I also want to get a sense of your home life during this time when you were a kid, because you lived in a small apartment in Brooklyn, right. and you slept in the dinette right. with your head against the Frigidaire. The strange thing about my upbringing at the time, I didn't think it was that odd. It was only years later, looking back on it, especially when I I learned the truth about my family, that 
it seems so preposterous to me that things could have been different. Describe your relationship with your uncles, Joe and Harry. It seemed like you really appreciated them. Your uncle Harry had quite the sense of humor. Now, you being a kid, you didn't always get his jokes, but the ones that you did get, they made you laugh. He would, um, you know, do these jokes. Sometimes he would direct them towards me so I would understand. He would say things like, um, if you um, ate a seven-layer cake with a glass of milk, it was an eight-course meal. A lot of the jokes he said to my parents I didn't quite understand. But he was, to envision it, when he was in the store dealing with customers, he was in his element. He was alive. He was as if he was the... um, um, host for a circus, the the ringleader. And that was his world, and the customers loved him because he had the, the persona to reach out to them. Uncle Joe was a, a little bit more staid. He, he um, I think the physical aspects of some of him made him a little bit um, cranky, but Uncle Harry was um, this, he was my favorite. He was my favorite. But Uncle Joe taught you how to drink hot tea. Right. That's... Um, a classic immigrant way to drink tea. And I still remember they had this house that had been my grandparents' house in the East New York section of Brooklyn. Now, maybe when they bought that house, um, it might have been um, a different kind of neighborhood. But by the time I saw it in the 60s, the neighborhood had changed and it was really a, a rundown community and they would only live there a few more years. But in the back room of that house, there was this, I still can see it, this steel table my Uncle Joe would put two glasses of burning hot tea down, never in a cup, always in a glass, and uh, the silver spoon um, next to it, and he would take a cube of sugar, tell me to put it in my mouth, and then to pick up the glass and sip it very slowly. And I would tell him it's too hot and we should use a cup, and he would always say, no, only in a glass. How do you drink hot tea today? I use a cup. <laughs> I <laughs> use <a> stick. Cup. <laughs> Your Uncle Joe also had this great saying that I appreciated reading about. Lindbergh made it. Lindbergh made it. He could be quite cynical, um, my Uncle Joe. And if someone said something to him that he did not have much patience for, he could cut them down to size with remarkably few few words. And, um, you know, it seems so long ago now, but when he was a young guy growing up, the big news in in the late 20s was Lindbergh, uh, the first solo flight. And at the time, people would be waiting, did Lindbergh make it? Didn't he make it? And if you, for example, would call up and say, where's my delivery? And Uncle Harry would be out getting ready to make it. He would say something like, it'll be there in a few minutes. You'll have your your, uh, rye bread or rolls, whatever it was. And, And by the way, Lindbergh made it. Um, And that to him was uh, this um, uh, kind of indirect put down. Your uncles very rarely closed the bakery, as we mentioned. They did close for your wedding. They were there. But they also closed during Passover because they couldn't sell bread. And you had some interesting dinners. Right. Food stamp seders. The food stamp seders, um, our seders were rather unusual in that as soon as dinner was over, uh, the place would be cleared away. And a year's worth of food stamps that had been collected in the store as legal tender would be dumped on the table by my Uncle Harry. He would turn on the news uh, news to Radio 88. And then the five of us, my, my mother and father, Uncle Harry and Uncle Joe and I, would spend the rest of the evening rubber banding these um, 
the food stamps and sorting them because they had to be brought to the bank within a certain amount of time. Otherwise, you couldn't um, be credited in your account for them. And so these seders were an opportunity for Uncle Harry, who, who really never stopped working, to uh, organize this money because during the year he never had the time to do it. He was too busy uh, making deliveries or whatever he did. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Bodarki, joined in studio this morning by Mort Zachter. Mort is the author of Doe, a memoir. Now, Doe, of course, meaning two things here, the bread that your uncles did not bake but sold, but also the money that they amassed. A big surprise to you. You learned this when you were in your 30s. Uh, 36 years old. When I was a kid, I really thought my uncles were poor the way they lived. They didn't spend any money. They didn't go out. They drove this beat-up old car. They wore suits that were like 40 years old. Um, And all they did was work. And then when I was 36, Uncle Joe at this point, um, this was 1994, I had just finished four very long years of going to law school at night, um, and I had just taken the bar exam, and I had gotten a call the next week from my mother telling me that my father was in the hospital and I've got to come to help. He had had colon cancer surgery, and he was still in the hospital. And that morning, I had gone to take her to the hospital. At this point, Uncle Harry was still alive, but he was suffering from um, the early stages of, of Alzheimer's, and he really didn't have all his faculties at that point. And he had been living with my parents at that point and actually sleeping in the same bed in the same dinette that I had grown up in. And it's a kind of a case of how the mighty have fallen. But I came back that morning and the phone rang. I picked it up and a man said, hello, Mr. Zachter. And I said, yes, because after all, I was Mr. Zachter, though this person obviously thought they were talking to my father. Um, and he said, there's a million dollars in the money market account. I think we should buy a million dollars worth of treasuries. And this was an incredible shock to me because even though I had never owned a brokerage account myself, at that point I had been trained as a CPA. I had an MBA in tax. And I had seen enough people who, who were affluent financials to know nobody keeps a million dollars in a, a money market account uh, unless they're um, insane that doesn't have a lot of other money in stocks and bonds. So this clued me in that there was a lot more going on here that I had ever envisioned. I had figured at that point as an adult that after all that work, my uncle, you know, he, he wasn't working now. He must have had some money. But this was just way beyond anything I had imagined. The next day, actually, I, I went up to their apartment. I had discovered, um, I'd been told that my uncle had a post office box. And I put all these financial statements together from the end of uh, July of 1994. And I saw that they had amassed Um, a great deal of money when, in fact, my Uncle Harry was, in essence, the real $6 million man, which was a TV show I watched when I was a kid with uh, Lee Majors. And your parents knew about it, though. Your parents knew that your uncle, uncles, had all of this money. Right. Um, My father, who, as I had mentioned earlier, was an attorney, he was, um, you know, he had helped them with their tax returns. I saw when I was cleaning up my uncle's apartment that my father was the attorney of record when they sold this um, house in the East New York section and moved to this Michelama housing downtown in the East, in the, um, on on First Avenue in the East Village. He was well aware of what they had, and my mother knew as well. And I then thought back to different conversations when I was a kid when they used to be amazed at why Penn Central Railroad went out of business. And as a kid, it never resonated with me because none of them took the railroad to work. And it was only later when I went through my um, uncle's 
um, financial papers that I saw that they indeed had owned stock in Penn Central, which became largely worthless after a while and was uh, one of the number of stocks they just held. My Uncle Harry had a buy-and-hold philosophy. Didn't He never sold anything. So by the time I came around, I saw they had stock in Pan Am and Western Union and a lot of other companies that had uh, gone out of business. What's really sweet, I must say, is the fact that your parents were proud that they were able to manage your uncle's money and never take a, a cent of it. Um, yeah, that was something when I, after I found out about the extent of their, their money and I, I confronted my father on it because I knew he would be the one who had the best financial knowledge. He said to me, well, it really wasn't our money. Well, in, in a sense, it wasn't his money, but my mother, it had been her family business. She had worked in the store for no pay. She surely was entitled to some of it. But my father viewed himself in his legal mode as being a fiduciary and, and just taking care of it. But what went through your mind, Mort, when you first learned this? Were you excited? Were you angry? My initial reaction was one of uh, elation. After I thought about it for a bit, then the doubts creeped in and saying, well, wow, my uncle had all this money. He could have so easily said to me what I would imagine I would do if I was in a similar position, having all this money that you're not using or spending and that's just basically accumulating. You know, if you really like English and you want to be a writer, why don't you just apply to any college you want and I'll pay for it. Over time, and in a way, writing this book, which took me quite a while, was in a way therapeutic in that a lot of the issues I had involving that kind of wore away. And now I just count my blessings. I'm a very lucky man. Were you ever able to have the why question answered? Why did your uncle keep all of this money and not share it? The answer, I think, as best as I can gather is threefold, and I guess the full answer, I, I would have loved to have known all about this before and, and asked him and discussed it, was number one, the immigrant mentality that we spoke about a bit before, number two, the depression era mentality that we touched on, but number three, there had to be an element of pathos. Um, my brother-in-law, who's a psychologist, um, said to me that this is somewhere, this this kind of hoarding mentality is in the obsessive-compulsive area. Why don't you explain for us, Mord, how you ended up inheriting the money? You have a history in accounting, so you understood estate taxes and how that right. all worked. What had happened is that uh, when Uncle Joe passed away, a lot of money was paid in estate taxes, and the uh, assets then passed to, um, um, because they had been held in joint accounts, to my Uncle Harry. When he passed away at that point, the assets would then go via uh, a trust that my father had set up, uh, unbeknownst to me, um, so the assets would go to my mother. But she, in a, in a tremendous act of generosity, filed what they call a disclaimer. Disclaimer is a thanks but no thanks, and when you file that, the assets pass if it, that, that person who's disclaiming the interest um, had predeceased the um, person who had died. In this case, the assets passed as if my mother had predeceased Uncle Harry when that wasn't the case. So I um, ended up inheriting the bulk of this money. What that did is it avoided another level of estate tax at that higher level within the family circle. In essence, it would have been taxed three times between the two brothers and the sister. You had careers in accounting and in law. Right. And even after you inherited all of this money, you continued your law career. I had worked very hard to get my law degree. Going to law school at night um, uh, is very difficult. I just had all these um, anxieties about giving it up. After 9-11, I was 
tremendously um, moved, and I just said, I must be crazy. And like a lot of people in in the tri-state area, I gave up my career, and I said, let me do what I really want to do. I'm as nuts as my uncles to keep doing what, in a sense, I really don't want to do when I prefer to do something else. And that's when I basically stopped practicing um, after that tax season and went on to write full-time. What's also very interesting is that while your uncle was not generous with you or your mom or your dad, he was generous with his customers. There were customers that, depending on how much they thought money they had, they would sometimes give them the bread for free. And there was this one woman who I unfortunately never met, and this is a story that's legendary in my family and was passed down, so I incorporated it in the book who was coming in so long into the store. She even, even my grandmother had served her, and she continued on into the 60s, and they gave her the bread for free because they thought she was impoverished. And then one day she was in the store, and another a young fellow came in, and she took her bread and quickly left upon seeing him. And my Uncle Joe asked this fellow, you know, he's very perceptive. You notice she left, and he said, you know who that lady was? And he says, sure, that's my landlady. She owns half the buildings on 10th Street. Um, and there was also another woman that my uncle was was apparently very generous with. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but he took care of her when she was older. There's a lot of elements of this story, um, both in terms of um, some mysteries that I never quite fully figure out. But yes, indeed, they were generous to the customers. And um, even when I was cleaning up, I found some receipts from packages that my grandmother had sent back to her relatives in Russia um, in the 1930s and 40s when they were struggling there. And, and here, my family, compared to those, was well off. Talk about cleaning up more. Your uncle's apartment, <laughs> wow, what you found there when you had to go inside and finally clean it out, from the umbrella collection to the numerous bank books from every bank that ever existed in New York City history. Right. What happened in the store was when people would come in, it might be raining when they come in. They were in there a while. They started to schmooze a little bit with my uncles, and then they would leave their umbrella. Well, they would keep it there in the store for a while, but if no one ever collected it, they eventually saved it and had it. And there was this pile of umbrellas in the middle of the apartment uh, at this point. My parents had done some cleaning up, and I guess they sorted all these umbrellas. And it was it looked like the mound in Richard Dreyfus in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That That's what it looked like. Um they had piles of annual reports. They never throw those away, and they owned a lot of stocks, so they were huge. Newspapers, which is a classic thing that people who, who kind of have this mentality keep because they hold it because then someday they're going to have the time to read it. And the most amazing thing of all to me was my uncle apparently would open up bank accounts in the 50s and 60s. At that time, he would open up a lot of them because they gave you a present depending on how much you deposited in the account. And I found box after box of different household utensils and plates and cookware and Tupperware and, and um, all kinds of stuff, but the boxes were unopened. And they had been mailed, and the date, for example, some of them dated back to before 1958, to before when I was born. So they got those things because they wanted to have them, but they never used them. It's, and you found the bank books to go along right, with all of right, that as well. Right. The whole history of New York savings uh, and loan industry was there for me to see, and I, I saved those. Um, you listed them, and it takes about a 
full page right. to list them in the book. Right. Um, you also found fruitcake boxes filled with money, money right. that was now disintegrating. Right. Um, they they saved money, I guess, to in part to make change, uh, to give change. And um, what my uncle would do was he would use uh, fruitcake boxes to store the money in. But the only problem was he didn't clean out the fruitcake boxes beforehand, so the so the resonance of the fruitcake caused the money to deteriorate, and it had been laying there in a, in a hot apartment that for the last year or two had been vacant. So this money was pretty much all crumbling and disintegrating, all rubber banded in circles tight, and uh, really, ironically and very symbolically, pretty much useless. More the Lower East Side is a very different place today than it was when your family first opened the bakery in the 1920s. Do you go back there frequently? Have you seen the changes? Yes. There are apartment buildings with uh, condos and co-ops being built there now that cost literally millions of dollars. There's one on the corner of Astor Place. Uh, apartments there go in the millions. But on one hand, it deeply saddens me because... When I was a kid, it was just where a lot of artists lived and creative people, and uh, there were a lot of galleries. And those have pretty much now moved literally in some ways across the river to places in Brooklyn because the people, the creative and talented people can't afford the rents anymore. That's on one hand. I'm sorry for the change that the middle class is, is getting squeezed out. But then on the other hand, I wonder... New York has always been this evolving, changing place, and what is the effect if you would put laws in place that would freeze rents and keep things the same? It's a fine line to walk how to handle that. One of the things I always do when I'm downtown is I go back to the bakery, and uh, I've developed a nice rapport with the people that own it now, and um, it's uh, my New York home. The book is Doe, a memoir. It's out now from the University of Georgia Press. More thank you. Thanks very much. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.